0: Episode 54, The Enlightenment. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, I need to step back for an episode and step away from the narrative of the English colonies in North America, which I really want to talk about, and instead spend a bit of time talking about one of the most important intellectual parts of the early modern era, because this whole intellectual trend that we're about to talk about really influences everything that happens in the next few episodes. It's really the ideas of the Enlightenment that drive the whole modern era, really, The Enlightenment is every bit as important as the Renaissance or the Reformation, historically, and it's more important in terms of shaping the ideas and values and society of the modern era. So this brings up the obvious question of, what is the Enlightenment, anyway, and why is it called that? What lights came on? Another term that is used to describe this era is the age of reason. And that seems a little cocky to me, like the people before this era had not been reasonable or were not using their brains or something. The Greeks and the Romans famously had made a big deal of reason, using reason to explore truth and how things worked. But something did change in the 1700s. Well, several things. So we'll look at some of those in this episode. The dominant worldview in Europe during the Middle Ages was a sort of hierarchical view of the universe and society with God at the top and the king next, and then the church and the bishops and things like earls and dukes below that, and then down at the bottom were the peasants. And the sort of rule was that you just accepted your place in society, and the people at the bottom didn't really have a lot of rights, and they didn't have full access to the law or its protections. That really only applied to the upper echelons of society. Inequality was kind of built into the social structure, and it was just kind of expected. That was your lot in life. But there were already a few things in the works that limited the powers at the top. Do you remember the Magna Carta? We talked about that way back in episode 34 on medieval literature. The Magna Carta was signed in 1215, and one of the key ideas behind it is the idea that even the king is subject to the law. It's a really important idea. If the king has to submit to the law, then everyone does. And It's not that far of a step to say that this law applies to everyone equally. That is, equally. From the king down to the lowest peasant. But despite the importance of the Magna Carta, the general ethos of medieval Europe was this concept of a hierarchy where the people at the top had the power and the rights, and the people at the bottom, well, they had mud. But things were coming besides the Magna Carta that began to change the acceptance of this hierarchy— The Reformation was part of this, and the small groups of believers that got together and demanded that they had the right to worship in the way they wanted to was a big part of this change. This is a really big thing. In the medieval world, you don't have this right. They only had the right to do what the powers at the top told them to do. But the Puritans and other separatist groups said that they had the right, according to the Bible, to follow God the way they felt best. And biblical arguments were not the only ones that were moving the mindset of Europe away from this hierarchical view towards the view that everyone had rights. So here's a key question for you for how you see the world. Do people all have rights just because they're alive and human? Or is it that whoever is in power at the top gives people some rights? Do you personally have the right to vote? Is that right inherent in the fact that you're human Or did your government grant you the right to vote? At a higher level, do you as a human or as part of a group of humans have the right to choose the government that is over you? Or are you stuck with the government you were born into? So I myself am part of a county and a state and a national government, also a homeowner's association, which is probably the second worst of those four after our current national government. Do I have the right to say, I'm no longer part of this county. They don't govern me. I'm no longer part of this state. I'm no longer part of this nation. I don't recognize the authority of this particular government because it has ceased to look out for my best interests. Can I, or me as part of a small group of people, just say, no, we're done with this government. It doesn't govern us. It doesn't apply to us anymore. And can we just start our own new government? Do we have the right to do that? Oddly enough, The Declaration of Independence says that we do. It's this idea that Nicolas Cage quotes in the first National Treasure movie, just after he's stolen said declaration. And he quotes, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right It is their duty to throw off such a government and provide new guards for their future security. Powerful quote, right? But where does this right come from, this right to throw off the government? Obviously, it's not a right that's granted to us by the government. The government's never going to do that. It must be considered an inherent right, a right that we just have because we're human, like the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But again, That's not how people saw the world in the Middle Ages. Where did this idea of inherent rights come from? It it comes from the Enlightenment. You hear the echo of this idea in the Declaration of Independence that we have rights, right? It also says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The idea here is that we all have these rights. That we're endowed with them by our creator. Another way of saying this is that we're just made with, born with these rights. They are ours just because we're human. And they are also inalienable. That is, we cannot be separated from them. But again, this isn't very Middle Ages, is it? How do we get to the place where Jefferson can say that we hold these truths to be self-evident? It wasn't the case 200 years before. Well, we can credit this change to the Enlightenment. So, back to the Enlightenment. Like any historical era, like the Renaissance and the Reformation, the Enlightenment was a substantial change in the societies of Europe. It started with a change of worldview, which was led by a few key scholars. There were several scholars who wrote influential books that changed individually a few key pieces of the worldview, and these changes in worldview began to affect how people viewed the church, government, and man's place in the world. Led by great thinkers like Rene Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, as well as scientists and mathematicians like Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal, Europe began to change the way it thought about nearly everything. Europe began to embrace rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism is the idea that everything can be understood through human reasoning alone, and empiricism is the idea that our understanding of the world should be based on empirical, that is, measurable, Data. These two ideas eventually become the bedrock for the scientific method, which involves creating a theory about something and then doing repeatable experiments to test the theory. Some of these thinkers began to change the way that people thought about human rights and government. John Locke, for example, not the John Locke that was lost on lost, but the John Locke, the original philosopher. John Locke was the son of Puritans, and he himself was a relatively devout man. He wrote an influential work called The Second Treatise on Government, which came out in 1689. This book makes the point that though we are all born into a society, we are by nature free. If you're born on the frontier, for example, you're not born into a society, so you're free to do as you choose, although Locke would argue that you're not free to violate the law of nature or God's law. According to Locke, both of these, the law of nature and God's law, support the idea that no one ought to harm another person in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. So, Locke in his book makes a big deal of personal possessions and property, and how by applying one's own work to nature, the things that are part of nature, natural law, they could become a person's property. For example, if you Find a wild blackberry bush out in, the, out in the wild, you're free to eat of it. However, if you find the blackberry bush that is growing in my backyard over by the pool motor, uh, which I have watered and then somewhat tended, then that blackberry bush is my property and you are not free to just take something of it because I've made it my own by my own work. Locke also makes the point that people join together in societies in order to protect themselves and specifically to protect their property and that once you've joined a society and participated in it, you're obligated to abide by its rules, if those rules are made justly. He argues, though, that if the government starts to take away the property of the people, then the government has forfeited its right to govern. And he says, this is a quote from Locke, Thus, it falls to the people who have a right to resume their own original liberty, by the establishment of a new legislature to provide for their own safety and security. Thus, if a long train of abuses, prevarications, and artifices, all tending the same way, make the design visible to the people, they may secure for themselves the ends of which their first government was first erected. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, several of those ideas are in the Declaration of Independence. It's this idea that's behind the Nick Cage quote that I mentioned earlier. But like I said, this is very different from the way things were seen in the Middle Ages. In fact, eight years before Locke's book came out, a guy named Robert Filmer published a book called Patriarchy or The Divine Right of Kings. Filmer's point was that people are born into a society and that they don't have any choice about that and that society itself is derived from the idea of fatherhood. And just as a father does not take directions from his young children about how to run the family, Neither does the king take direction from the people. So, in some ways, Locke's second treatise on government is a rebuttal to Filmer's ideas. Locke's ideas are some of the key ideas of the Enlightenment, that we all have natural or inherent rights, and that those rights are ours just because we've been born. He also points out that all men, all men, have these rights that we're all created equal. Once Locke had established that the purpose of a government was to protect the rights and property of his people, another guy comes along and writes a book that explains the best way to create this type of government. This guy was Charles Montesquieu. He wrote a book called De l'Esprit de l'O, or The Spirit of the Laws, that looked at the Greek democracy and the Roman Republic and the way that those governments protected the rights of their citizens against tyranny. Montesquieu's big idea was the separation of powers, the idea that by keeping different functions of government separate, you could prevent tyranny. For example, keeping the judges who judge the law separate from the legislature who writes the law, you prevented corruption and tyranny. It's the idea of checks and balances, that one branch of government will check and balance the power of the other branches, keeping any one group or person from having too much control. Montesquieu was also very influential to the American founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson, in his own personal correspondence to his friends, mentions Montesquieu more than a hundred times. Both Montesquieu and Locke contributed to the idea of a social contract, the idea that government exists because the people have come together to form a contract with each other, and that part of the social agreement that they have made together was this government. I found a good summary quote about it in the Britannica article on the Enlightenment. It says, The idea of society as a social contract, however, contrasted sharply with the reality of actual societies in the day. Thus, the Enlightenment became critical, reforming, and eventually revolutionary. Locke and Jeremy Bentham in England, Montesquieu, Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Denis Diderot, and Concordet, in France, and Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson in colonial America all contributed to an evolving critique of the arbitrary authoritarian state and to sketching the outline of a higher form of social organization based on natural rights and functioning as a political democracy. Such powerful ideas found expression as reform in England and revolution in France and America. It's a good quote, nice summary. The Enlightenment was partly about the birth of this idea of social contract, but there was more to it than just this. Part of what was going on in the Enlightenment was that people were challenging the idea that man is born sinful and corrupt. Thomas Hobbes, for example, in the book Leviathan, argues that humans are moved solely by considerations of pleasure and pain. He viewed humans as neither a neither morally good nor morally bad, but instead humans are just interested in survival and maximizing our own pleasure. It's a very solid step away from the morality of the Bible, which basically viewed humans as moral creatures. And Hobbes is saying, no, we're not moral creatures. We're more like animals. In Hobbes' view, humans were not governed by divine law, but only by natural law, and that divine law was an invention. That is, to Hobbes, the ultimate source of authority was not received revelation from God, but instead the ultimate authority was to look at the way things really are and just discover natural laws using reason. Hobbes' book also went into great detail describing the social contract between people and government, though Hobbes comes down firmly on the side of a strong monarch, saying that a strong monarchical government is the only way to impose order on the natural way of things. In Hobbes' view, humans were not governed by divine law, but only by natural law. That is, to Hobbes, the ultimate source of authority was not received revelation of God's laws, but instead the ultimate authority was to look at the way things really are in the world and to discover natural laws using reason, and then to do what works. This is, overall, part of the intellectual movement of the Enlightenment, which ultimately affected the worldview of all of the West. The Enlightenment was a movement away from revealed truth or authority towards human experience and scientific empiricism. Another way to say that is that you don't find truth by studying Aristotle or the Bible. You find truth by investigating the world for yourself and that each person finds their own truth. Now, this will, of course, eventually lead us to postmodernism, where there's no truth at all, except for the truth that each person thinks for themselves. Speaking of thinking for yourself, one of the most important works of the Enlightenment was Rene Descartes' book Meditations, or by its full name, Meditations on First Philosophy in Which is Proved the Existence of God and the Immortality of the Soul. Not at all a pompous book title, that one, no. But this is the book where he makes the famous claim, Cogito, ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore, I am. Actually, in the book he just says, cogito sum, I think, I am, without the therefore, but it's easier to understand his point with the therefore in it. Descartes starts with the idea of rejecting all sources of authority since they, like podcasters, are often wrong. He basically casts doubt on everything, peeling it all away until he comes to the idea that he is aware of his own thinking, and therefore he must exist cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am then he tries to build up proof of things like god's existence and the immortality of the soul based on this one idea this was so influential to the enlightenment was descartes rejection of authority instead of looking to the authorities like aristotle in the bible he's looking to himself Descartes also wrote a book called Discourse on the Method, which was a clear explanation of the scientific method and empiricism. Descartes also wrote several books on science and mathematics, hugely influential. Part of empiricism is to doubt everything, to test everything, and only through repeatable tests and lots of measurements and math can you find out how things really work and what is really true. Again, it points to a rejection of revealed authority and towards the idea of each person being responsible for finding their own truth. So part of the big change in the Enlightenment wasn't just the content of thinking, but the method of finding the truth behind the thinking. The great scientific thinkers of the 1600s, like Descartes and also Isaac Newton, as well as others, changed the worldview of Europe from an acceptance of authority to a kind of skepticism of authority, in a sense that science and math were the new authorities. Oddly enough, the skepticism of authority doesn't seem to extend to science and math. I'm going to have to do a whole episode on the history of science and its limitations, I think. Anyway, the skeptics and the scientists also turned their attention to religion, and one of the other trends of the Enlightenment was the concept of deism which is the idea that God is not personally involved in the world like Christianity taught, but that he was more like a divine clockmaker who had created the world, wound it up, and then just let it run. According to deism, he wasn't directly involved in the function of the world. So many of the deists did not believe in miracles or the stories of the Bible where God directly intervenes in human lives. Here's another summary, a quote from Britannica again. The product... Of a search for a natural, that is rational, religion was deism, which although it never organized itself into a cult or movement, it did conflict with Christianity for two centuries, especially in England and in France. For the deist, a very few religious truths sufficed, and they were often truths felt to be manifest to all rational beings. The existence of one God, who is often conceived of as an architect or mechanician, The existence of a system of rewards and punishments administered by God, and the obligations of humans to virtue and piety. Beyond the natural religion of the deists lay the more radical products, though, of this line of thought—skepticism, atheism, and materialism." It's a good summary. And sure enough, the drift toward deism does lead to atheism and materialism, which we see in modernism, and then even more of it in postmodernism but many of the famous Enlightenment thinkers were deists, or at least they had moved somewhat in that direction. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a deist. He had a version of the Bible that he had personally gone through and removed from it all references to miracles because he didn't believe that those happened. So part of the Enlightenment was a move away from the involved personal God of the Middle Ages to a more distant, removed creator who didn't take an active role in the day-to-day function of the world. This made sense also from the perspective of science, as well, you know, there's no way to empirically test for something like God, something spiritual. You can't prove God in a laboratory using repeatable experiments. He just doesn't show up. The Enlightenment brought about huge changes in the worldview of Europe, which led to important changes in the way that humans saw themselves, their government, and their place in the world. As the Enlightenment progressed, There was also a counter-movement away from the raw rationalism of the Enlightenment towards sensation and emotion. This counter-movement becomes known as Romanticism, and it will eventually produce some of the best poets and authors of Europe. As we will see in the upcoming episodes, the Enlightenment produced some huge changes in government, as the Founding Fathers of the United States leaned heavily on Enlightenment thinkers and principles. The leaders of the french revolution did as well maybe even more so the high optimism about human potential that was part of the enlightenment led to the idea of creating a social utopia with an ideal government but the subsequent terror of the french revolution and the eventual abuses of the early industrial age will bring all this optimism crashing down we'll see that in upcoming episodes too but first next episode we will look at one of the very first victims of the Enlightenment as England overthrows its monarchy, at least for a little while. Join me next time for the English Civil War and the restoration of the monarchy.